You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Room Now recap, the daily recap. In this case, the Monday evening recap of ACR 21. I'm joined by the Room Now faculty and uh, we're gonna discuss the day's events that we thought were interesting. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Anthony Chan, who's from London, England, uh, Eric Dine, who's in New Jersey, Olga Petrina in New York City, uh, and Akil Sud, who's in Houston. Uh, okay, folks, uh, the morning always begins with posters. You know, the cup of coffee, you got your breakfast burrito or your waffle, and you're looking for posters. Tell me a poster or an abstract that you saw this morning that you that you really liked. Eric, why didn't you start? Sure. So I'll start with um, one poster I saw. It was abstract 1367. It was from uh, the world of scleroderma. And this was by Dr. Anna Tucker. And uh, they looked at patients with GI disease and scleroderma, in particular, breaking down by different findings on esophageal manometry. And when they compared patients with absent contractility to other problems like ineffective motility or hypotensive lower esophageal sphincter, they find that these patients seem to be in a category of their own. So the patients with the absent contractility, they're the ones that are more likely to have diffuse cutaneous skin disease, cardiac disease, and all of the patients in the cohort that they looked at. So 14 patients that have passed away from complications from scleroderma, all you know, mostly kind of uh, cardiovascular and pulmonary, um, were part of this group of absent, absent contractility. So 21% of that group had mortality compared to zero in the other group. So I think this is an interesting poster just, just showing um, some things you know, about uh, GI scleroderma being something serious and, and a, a risk factor of something else going on as well. So you said absent contractility, is that esophageal contractility is absent? Yeah, so particularly that the patients that have completely absent uh, contractility of the esophagus are different from the ones that just have ineffective motility. So the ones that they, they really find nothing when they do the manometry, they seem to be in a category of their own. And this is a finding that we would commonly see because we not uncommonly will do um, uh, upper GI studies, uh, including manometry and um, barium swallows and whatnot. That might be a really nice, useful clinical tool. Um, Akil, tell me a poster you saw that you liked. Yeah, so for me, um, today really the theme seemed to be is aging. Uh, you know, started with a lecture on multi-complexity and management of rheumatoid arthritis, and it led me to seeing a lot of the posters that really stood out were on aging and uh, comorbidities. And uh, one that I want to highlight was uh, Abstract 1044 um, by, uh, by uh, uh, members at UCSF. They looked at polypharmacy in um, elderly patients with rheumatic diseases. And they used the RISE registry and using this large database, they were able to find that approximately 40% of patients across all rheumatic diseases uh, were receiving inappropriate medications, including opioids, benzos, and uh, NSAIDs and other medications as per the beer's criteria. And it didn't really differ by rheumatic disease type. And then one thing I thought was really interesting and was really, um, I thought significant in the finding was that in the older patients um, uh, receiving opioids, they're most likely to come from areas of low socioeconomic status or neighborhoods with low socioeconomic status, which I thought was really interesting and really uh, alarming. Yeah, you know, this is the, the ugly side of medicine. And you know who's to blame? All of us. 
You know, my rule and the way I try to combat polypharmacy is, um, you know, if they've got more than six or seven drugs and you want to add one, you got to take one away. Or, and I tell the patient, when the doctors start piling the drugs onto you, say, doc, I'll take your new medicine, but you got to take away two. And, and don't be messing with Dr. Cush's, you know, methotrexate. You know, he yells at me when you do that. So, you know, you have to have some strategy that you're going to contribute to the resolution of the problem is a major safety issue. Does anybody else have any recommendations on how to manage polypharmacy, which is, a, a, as Akil points out, a really big problem? I agree with actually trying to minimize the amount of medications patients take. And I think EMR is quite helpful in this regard because a lot of times when we prescribe, we don't think about what patient is on. And then uh, in the, most of the EMRs now, when you prescribe a new medication, it gives you a list of potential interactions. So it makes you stop and think, oh, hold on a minute. Does this patient really need to be on that or this drug? And like, can we adjust their treatment plan to make it more uh, workable for the patient without overloading them with this multiple medications? So I think EMR is quite useful. In, Eric, your, in your suggestion? Yeah, I was going to say, it, you know, it's a problem when you're giving medications to treat other medications. So if you're giving uh, medications for constipation because they're on opiates, or you're giving, you're treating dry eyes because they're on anticholinergics, that, that's when you need to flag something that something needs to be done there. That's a really good one. I like that one because um, you can knock out two meds, you know, prednisone, and you're giving a bisphosphonate for. Um, glucocorticoid induced osteoporosis. Now, maybe, maybe you can't drop both of them, but that, that's a really smart idea. Anthony, how do you handle this? Uh, we, we usually would um, involve our pharmacists. Uh, certainly, they have one very useful thing, which is the green pen. They come around on our ward rounds and they strike out things that shouldn't be there. So that is the, the most powerful thing I've found, um, the green pen. The green pen, that sounds scary. Let me, let me see if I got a green pen here. Anyways, all right. Um, uh, who else has got an interesting abstract from this morning? Anthony? Yeah, so uh, talking about metotrexate, uh, 1444 was an interesting study that came from uh, the UK, and it looked at the um, incidence of um, um, nausea and also alopecia in people who were taking metotrexate. And what they found was that uh, there, was a, there was a correlation with um, alcohol intake, uh, female gender, disease activity. And also interestingly, the patient's concern about having nausea predicts nausea, so a nocebo effect. And if they were older, then they tend, tended not to have so much nausea. With alopecia, they found also a very similar thing and the HAC score also somewhat correlated with uh, the dead alopecia. So I think one of the things that we can modify is certainly the alcohol intake. So if you didn't drink, they seem to have less nausea on metotrexate. So I think that's a kind of practical um, study uh, that shows uh, some of the advice that we can be giving our patients who are on metotrexate. I've never heard that. That's really kind of interesting that, that that might be a, a, a potential contributor because what most rheumatologists do with nausea is they just up the folate dose and that I don't think works. Um, um, my recommendation for nausea is actually either dextromethorphan as mucinex DM given with methotrexate and the day after and there's a biology behind that. It's another lecture. Uh, or if they have oral ulcers and nausea, then vitamin A every day, 8,000 units a day. And these work really, really well. And I, I, I've, I've actually published those, actually did abstracts on those. So, um, but the idea of stopping something like alcohol, that would make sense. Alopecia methotrexate seems like mainly women complain of this and I don't really have a solution for it. 
other than stopping methotrexate. Does anybody else have a better way of dealing with this? No, okay. Uh, Olga, uh, tell us a, a good abstract. Yeah, I really like the abstract 1083, which speaks about uh, COVID-19 outcomes in patients with auto-inflammatory diseases. And I found it very interesting because we talk about cytokine storm with COVID, and then we talk about group of conditions that is prone to complication called MAS, which is a type of cytokine storm. And I was like positively like surprised to find out that patients with auto-inflammatory conditions did actually quite well in terms of COVID-19 outcomes. So in this group, patients who, who had underlying condition had the flare of the disease in about 31% of the cases, most of them during the COVID um, episode, some of them right after, but majority of them did really well. Most of the uh, patients had mild to moderate illness. About 60% of them had lingering symptoms like myalgia, arthralgia, respiratory issues, but not severe. And in this particular study, they only report one case of neurobichas that required ICU admission, one case of pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome, and one adult. So the rest of the patients performed quite well, and I think it's really reassuring uh, for this uh, group of the conditions. So um, before they got COVID, were those patients well-controlled and taking medicines that might be beneficial in COVID? So they don't specify in what stage or like what severity of the disease patients were before they contracted COVID. And I think it would be interesting to know that. I would assume and suspect that they were probably well controlled because I, I wouldn't expect a patient with active uh, like flare of inflammatory disease to do well with COVID-19 outbreak. So yeah, I did not find the information in this particular presentation it would be very interesting to know. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, let's go to, um, before we get to the plenary session, there was a really interesting drug safety session um, with the FDA. Um, and Mike Weissman uh, hosted that. We had uh, presentations from um, three FDA officers that talked about a lot of different things. Is any, any highlight, any of that highlight um, your day? Um, anyone have a comment on that session? Yeah, I thought it was uh, very interested in the use of a collagenase um, in deuptitrins. Um, we often see a lot of this. They have surgery, but it tends to recur. Um, so it, this could be something that we, you know, in the future could be quite a useful way of treating deuptitrins contractures. Yeah, you know, they, the, the point being the FDA is looking at the safety, uh, re-examining the safety of Zyaflex, um based but they didn't go into any detail about that. Do you know any more about what the particular concern is? No, no, not uh, not other than what was presented at the meeting yeah. at the session. Yeah, they yeah they dropped that in at the end, sort of like a, as a last minute yeah. mention, you know, uh, amongst the you know new indications and new things that they're looking at. Um, uh, who else uh, enjoyed that session? I mean, I thought that the you know the, the of course the the big issue was the discussion of eleven thirty three and what they could say about eleven thirty three. Uh, and the bottom line is they couldn't say very much about 1133 other than what's already been being presented here at the meeting and um, uh, what they've already put out. Uh, and what I, you know, what everybody's really concerned about is, and there are questions at the end, um, and the uh, uh, FDA said when asked about um, why do why do these worries on tofacitinib 1133 apply to baricitinib and who had a The answer was that 
They're all used for the, for the same chronic inflammatory indications. They all seem to have the same risk for those conditions, like whether it be cancer or VTE or uh, cardiovascular events or stroke. Uh, and hence a drug, any one of the drugs has the potential to do that. And uh, bar um, baricitinib has a pre-existing ongoing safety registry that's, that's now in play. Uh, it wasn't done the same way as this particular oral surveillance study was. And there is no post-marketing study um, in play right now for upadacitinib. What they are doing is that they're waiting for um, the, after they got the letter that they have to revise their warnings and it's going to be a box warning. Um, there's this 30 day, 30 day, 15 day, five day. It looks like it could be as much as 75, maybe even 80 days from the, from the September 1 date before a new box warning is going to show up on the package insert or on the website for the drugs. If you look at the website for drugs, there is currently no um, updated information except for tofacitinib. Their box warning hasn't changed, but they have a little blurb about, you know, the safety and, and that they're basically, it needs to be discussed, you know, what would, between the patient and the doctor. So um, that FDA session is usually fairly well attended and I think had a, had a lot of interest today. Lastly, I think, we not lastly, but the most importantly, we should get into the plenary session. Anybody want to start with a plenary session they thought was particularly impactful? I, I thought that um, the last plenary session, the, um, the final presentation on Alpine 303, which is um, currently just doing uh, animal trials, but at the very end, they, they told us that they're about to start a phase one study with healthy volunteers to start doing some human studies. But this was a, a new drug, new mechanism, looking at a, a dual bath and April antagonist for SLA. So they, um, presented a whole bunch of exciting information that it has a, a good immunomodulatory uh, activity and efficacy in animal models. It's been shown to decrease plasma cells and immunoglobulin secretions. Um, and you know everything in terms of the tolerability in the animals and, and everything looks encouraging. And it's just exciting with all the new medications that we've had in the lupus pipeline that this is something very, very in the early stages, but I'm, I'm interested to see what happens from there. You do know, of course, that um, there have been April inhibitors in the past that really have never worked out. Mm -hmm. um, they sort of crashed and burned. Um, BAF is bulimimab, and uh, it's done okay, uh, but pretty slow uptake. My concern is there is a lot of drug development in the area of lupus. Um, I don't know who to use these drugs in, meaning if you get a new drug like Boclosporin or um, now the new uh, bulimimab, indication where you have an indication for nephritis. That's great, but give me an indication for lupus. Well, it's hardly not gonna be used. And the number of patients you know, in the United States with lupus is you know, 290,000. Um, you know, it's, I'm sorry, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the number. Yeah, it's about, about 200,000 or so. And you know, of course the Lupus Foundation says it's 5 million, but that's the number of ANA positivity, not lupus. So of that 200,000 or so, you know, what number need a new therapy beyond what you can do with hydroxychloroquine, azathioprine, mycophenolate, intermittent steroids, you know, comorbidity management, et cetera. It's, it's getting to a small number and uh, it becomes a highly competitive market. And I don't know that we know a lot, like the, the great debate was on vocal sporin versus bolivimab. 
I, if anything, it was a very good debate, but is that going to help people make a decision? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the other new medicine out there is anaphrolimab, which I think we, we know pretty well that if we have patients with high interferon, it would respond well. But in a clinical practice, outside of a research setting, figuring out who those patients are, you know, if, if there's a way to start to use some of these markers and measure some of these things, I think there are ways we can target them to the patients. But I think in clinical practice, it's well behind what the... What I, the I, I've been screening for years in RA that if you want to keep piling on with drugs, you know, that all have the same ACR 20, 50, 70 response, um, don't expect me to use a new drug because you're not telling me a better way to use it, a smarter way where it's going to work and exactly who. You know, I think this is a lesson for the lupus community where the market is smaller, the disease is more severe, the number of drugs are starting to pile on. And if they don't come into the game with a, a rule, a biomarker, you know, a profile that really augments the response, we shouldn't be adopting it very quickly. When I started my fellowship, one of my, one of my attendings said, we don't start new drugs here. We let everybody else start them. And then 10 years later, if they're still around, we might could use them. And I thought, well, that's, I'm not sure what kind of fellowship this is going to be, but they obviously conservatism does prevail. So Anybody else have a, a favorite from that session? Uh, Olga, you and I are into autoinflammatory diseases. Um, uh, 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 we had this great presentation from the NIH on uh, that genotype, that certain um, uh, gene mutations, specific gene mutations, the valine uh, leading the way um, is a worse subset of the VEXA syndrome with high mortality rates and whatnot. And the other thing about that, analysis of a cohort of patients was that it was the patients who had um, needed the most amount of transfusions were the ones who were going to do poorest. Um, the transfusions, I guess, reflecting the myelofibrosis and the marrow disease that sometimes affects that disease. Uh, I thought it was a fabulous presentation. I just haven't seen many of those cases. Has anybody seen a Vexus case yet? Yeah, we have seen uh, one that um, obviously there's a overlap. I think the plenary covered this in uh, 1426 about the overlap between this and relapsing polychondritis and right. sweets and a few of these other um, conditions. They're all steroid responsive, uh, but I think the genetic testing is, is going to help us uh, kind of identify these patients better. So um, there is so much overlap between the classification criteria with these conditions with access. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Olga. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's um, like mimicry with the relapsing polychondritis and similarity in presentation may result in a lot of underdiagnosis of access. So I think, you know, having high level of suspicion for access and like triggering the genetic testing is quite important, especially in conditions that have such a high mortality rate. So just having awareness about the disease spread around is very important. Dr. Ferrada, who did the presentation, did... Um, tease the audience by saying that there's companies that are working on the genetic testing, so it'll become available, but that clinically you might suspect Vexus if the patient has a high MCV and a dropping platelet count. Isn't that kind of cool? Okay. Um, anything else from the plenary session before we move on? No? Any, I like the Junipera study, which is the secukinumab data. Um, being given to, to kids with uh, either enthesitis-related arthritis, the ERA variant, 
or kids with psoriatic, uh, juvenile psoriatic arthritis. Um, it was a typical JIA design where everybody gets drug going in open label. Uh, and then the responders then randomized to continuation or withdrawal and they looked at flare rates. And clearly the drug works really, really well for both those conditions and also for not just enthesitis, but also dactylitis. And you know the, the 102 week outcomes were really quite impressive. Um, adding to a growing list of drugs that are now uh, available to the pediatric population. You know, when we started getting into RA trials, like around the end of the 2000 or so uh, and developing soon thereafter, the FDA came out with a mandate that said that if a drug company is going to develop a drug for RA, they got to make an effort to develop it for, you know, JIA as well. And so we've seen a lot of drugs that have been approved for JIA from abatacept to, you know, and, and now the secukinumab being added to one of these variants, I think makes the pediatric rheumatology community quite happy. So um, let's go into the afternoon. Anything in the afternoon that you thought was uh, something that was a takeaway, uh, Olga? Uh, I cannot think of any afternoon sessions, actually. I think more of my interesting presentations were in the morning. Yeah. How about Knowledge Bowl? Anybody see Knowledge Bowl? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was there a winner? Yeah. Uh, well, UTMB one actually where that's where I'm UTMB? right now. UTMB? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. So <laughs> let's be clear. I mean, uh, first off, you, you wouldn't be lying to us. Uh, a person who's from UTMB in Galveston, Texas. Akil Sud is actually a third year resident going into rheumatology. Third year, correct, Akil? Yes. And, uh, and he's just joined the room now faculty. So we're glad to have you. But they won the, um, the Knowledge Bowl? They did win. Fabulous. Yeah, they got um, the final Jeopardy, uh, the final uh, Jeopardy, right? <laughs> you remember what the final Jeopardy question was? Uh, yeah, so um, I don't remember exactly, but it was about um, a specific mutation um, with, um, and yeah, I don't remember the exact, but it was, about, it was an auto-inflammatory auto actually related. I, I, well, <laughs> could, could it have been the criteria? I saw one of the questions was, um, these, the, the Yamaguchi criteria oh, refers yeah. to what? And they said you could oh, yeah. have used Cush or Fautrell. I saw that. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, they're talking about Stills disease, um, which I thought was funny. So, all right. Congratulations, UTMB. Go Galveston. <laughs> all right. Um, I don't usually get to attend that, but I keep hearing these great stories about the Knowledge Bowl. It's a lot of fun, and I think that it's, uh, it really gets serious when it comes to the competition. So anybody else have a great afternoon session we want to end with? I, I thought the afternoon session on um, from the RA abstracts that a Anthony had mentioned the the one session on, on or the one presentation on methotrexate and its toxicity, but there was a session on um, long term effectiveness of what they call ultra low dose rituximab, where they give just two hundred milligrams for rituximab, which um, seems to have very good outcomes, but very interesting there. And um, they, there was a I think everything in that session was worth checking out. And with that ultra low dose, uh, did they show data on how long the B cell depletion was sustained? So they, they didn't. I actually chatted with um, with the author, and, and we have a podcast that that came out with Rumel um, already. And, and he said they didn't show any CD19 levels as part of the the presentation, but he said that it did bring down the CD19 uh, down to zero. It it took less time for it to regenerate. Uh, compared to other patients, but um, they were still able to do every six-month scheduled dosing without any problems. 
rituximab, how low can you go? Um, I find this to be useful in patients who have limited financial resources. And, you know, if we can get a vial or two, you know, that can last them pretty good. Uh, great. I, I, I like being, mentioning that one. We, we've also been looking at it with a group that um, I'm working with. Anthony, do you have anything in the afternoon that you liked? Yeah, I, th I thought there was um, also a contrasting uh, study one on steroids. Um, if you use it for 30 days, um, you can sort of increase the risk um, um, sort of uh, in the next 30 days. But then there was also a contrasting study on statins again, uh, coming back again that using statins reduce your cardiovascular risk and all cause mortality. So um, somewhat a kind of nice balance between the two therapies that we could possibly use in RA. Yeah. Um, of course, the statin data came out earlier this year, just before the meeting about the statins not preventing the onset of RA. Um, that did not pan out as people had hoped. And you're mentioning the number of days. I want to, uh, Mike Weissman in the, in the FDA safety session asked the question of the FDA. Um, uh, here's baricitinib um, and, uh, you know, as a potential therapy for uh, patients with COVID-19, but yet baricitinib is now being listed as a, uh, a safety concern. And the FDA's response to that was baricitinib's use for COVID-19 is limited to four milligrams a day for one week or up to 14 days max, during which you wouldn't expect much of a of a cardiovascular or a cancer risk. So I think that's important that everyone should know that. Yeah, I think on that point, I think the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, TIC2, we've also seen quite a lot at the ACR. Those should also probably be, be sort of reviewed in yeah, terms of and, safety. And that question was asked and they um, they avoided it, but they said it's clearly in the it's in the family and, and hence it'll be reviewed for the same uh, risks. Um, but since they're not FDA approved, they're not going to get that label. Um, but that data is going to be very important going forward. Um, closing comments. Anyone want to close with uh, something they're looking forward to or something they were excited about? Akil? Um, yeah, I mean, today I think was a really great day. I think um, a lot of great uh, great talks. I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, with like a lot of the talks for me were really centered around aging from the, the electron multi-complexity in RA and then the, the posters. And even the afternoon, there was a talk on the immunology of aging as well, which I thought was really interesting showing that how um, uh, changes in T cell function, um, uh, uh, lymphocytes, and um, can actually uh, um, affect the susceptibility to infection and even uh, even uh, accelerated um, within uh, rheumatic disease as well. And there's this whole very cool area going on of targeting cellular senescence mm -hmm. in the future and where that's going to go. That's going to be kind of neat. Uh, Olga? Well, I... What I like, I'm not sure if it was morning or afternoon today, but uh, there is a lot of talk about comorbidities in ex-spondylarthropathies. There is a particularly poster on like de undiagnosed depression in ex and look, there are quite high levels of undiagnosed depression. They go in parallel with like the BASDI scores being being bad, and then again, um, more prevalence of depression in female versus male patients. So I think you know more emphasis on um, comorbidities in expa is what I'm looking forward to 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 learn more about. You know the comorbidity story keeps happening all over the place. Where if there's comorbidities in play, multimorbidity in play, worse responses, worse outcomes. Yeah. And we're just rheumatologists, meaning that we think all that stuff's going to happen magically in the hands of the primary care. That's a big concern going forward. Eric. Yeah. So I think what I'm looking for, obviously tomorrow, um, we can have all the late breaking abstracts and a lot of COVID information. 
Uh, and then also the oral surveillance data when that gets pre presented on, on the JAK inhibitors has been kind of the elephant in the room the whole conference thus far. So that'll be exciting. Yeah. Um, and Anthony, any final uh, recommendations or what you're looking forward to? Uh, tomorrow I'm going to learn, learn a lot of new therapies in a PSA and XPAR. There's a whole session tomorrow. So really looking forward to the, um, the new, new therapies. I'm looking, boy, we got a lot of comments. I'm sorry, I didn't pay any attention. So let me see if I can do this um, quickly. Recall uh, EMRs like that, EMR. Biotin for alopecia, sounds like bogus to me. Um, uh, to switch methotrexate to parenteral. If you switch methotrexate to parenteral, you make toxicity worse. You're delivering more drug. That's an FDA, that's an ACR recommendation. It's totally, totally idiotic. If you do split dose oral, or you switch to parenteral sub-Q, you increase toxicity. You do not decrease any toxicity. I mean, the data on that is abundantly clear. Um, uh, methotrexate for nausea, like a tendon rupture. Yeah, oh, I think it was tendon rupture and, and skin necrosis with Zyaflex. Thank you for that input. Um, and David asked, what's the chances you think that they will ask upadacitinib for a safety phase 3B or 4 safety study I don't know. I haven't heard that. And I think um, if anything's going to happen, the FDA is not likely to ask for it. The company may say, we want to do it because we don't want to be saddled with this because we think our drug is safer. We'll see if they actually want to spend what, a, what amounts to about $10 million to do a study like that, maybe much more than that. Um, UPA has its own safety data. That's long-term safety data, Leica, that, uh, that is from Gerd Burmester. It basically shows what everybody knows. Um, go Texas, go Galveston. Uh, <laughs> all right, we're getting down to the bottom. Um, what's the likelihood that a room, community rheumatologist will see a VEXA syndrome? You know what? A tornado can happen anytime. And it's better to know about it and think about it, especially. So the bottom line is, I think Olga says, is that, you know, you see a relapsing polychondritis patient, maybe you need to rethink that. All right, folks, thanks so much for uh, spreading the wisdom. I want to remind our audience that tomorrow we are going to do rheumatology roundup, Dr. Artie Cavanaugh and myself. Um, ain't no telling what he's going to say and how I'm going to respond. So be sure to tune in. It's going to be a one hour session and we will take questions. Good night, everyone. Good night.